0: Welcome back. It's another episode of Unwritten Rules and Iowa Cubs podcast. I'm your host this week, play-by-play broadcaster Alex Cohen. And to listen to all past, present, and future episodes, make sure you subscribe to Unwritten Rules on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, as well as Amazon Music, or check us out online at iowacubs.com. Got a great episode for you today. Joining us via Zoom, current play-by-play voice of the Oakland Athletics on the radio, and more importantly, former Iowa Cubs play-by-play voice just a few years back in 1988. Vince Catronio joining us. Vince, how are you? Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Alex. Uh, good good to uh, hear from you and looking forward to reliving some memories from really a fun year for me in Iowa back in 1988.
0: Just just a few years back. I mean, you, you, you've aged gracefully during that time. Uh, before we get into your time with the Iowa Cubs, let's give our fans some background. Where are you from who were your baseball allegiances towards early on, whether it was on the radio or just watching as a fan?
1: Well, it, it was different because even though I was born in New York, I'm the youngest of, of four sons, uh, we left when I was very young. I was uh, All of my schooling was in Orlando, Florida. My dad uh, worked for the Navy as a civilian. Uh, he was a budget analyst for them. So we got transferred from Long Island down to uh, Orlando back in the mid-'60s before Mickey Mouse was even there. So. Uh, that, that's kind of where it started. Uh, that said, I was still raised in kind of a like uh, a northern house, if you will. Both of my parents are Italian. We certainly had our you know share those types of uh, moments and in, in those holidays, and the way we the way we uh, went about our business in, in that regard. Uh, you know, I played baseball as a kid. My dad was a was a little league coach for over three decades down there in our town, which was called Altamont Springs which is, you know, a suburb of Orlando. Uh, and I just, uh, even though I was raised in Florida, I didn't really have access uh, as a kid to like turn on Jack Buck or turn on Vince Scully or, you know, Bob Murphy or what, whoever the case might be, Harry Carey. That, that didn't really exist in Orlando. My, my, my major league baseball experience consisted of the game of the week, you know, with, uh, with Vince Scully and Tony Kubek and Joe Gargiola. And, you know, some of the, you know, the the postseasons with Al Michaels and all all those litany of uh, broadcasters that did those games. And then on Sundays, we'd get the Atlanta Braves on television, the Sunday package from a station out of St. Petersburg, where Milo Hamilton, who eventually I became one of his partners, uh, he was doing some of those games as well, along with Ernie Johnson. So uh, I, I grew up a fan of New York teams. I was a Yankee fan. I was a catcher. I wore number 15, so Thurman Munson was my guy.
0: He was your player comp, right? Like when you were growing up, people were like, he's going to be the next Thurman Munson.
1: <laughs> he was a better hitter than I. Uh, I try to throw a little bit like him, that three-quarters delivery to second base. Uh, I still carry with me in, in my work bag a uh, Thurman Munson card. Uh, my wife gave that to me as a gift many years ago. The, the old story is uh, you know, Bob Costas carries around a, a Mickey Mantle card, and the, the line is, you should always have a religious article on you at all times in the case of an emergency. And in my case, it was, it was Thurman Munson. So he was the guy that I loved. Uh, I knew when I was a kid, uh, one of my best friends growing up, his name is Tony chef's And he is a psychologist now on the East coast. And he was, you know, we all have the best player we ever were around. And Tony was that guy for me. He went to, a, he went to a different high school than I did. Uh, He went to the high school that my older brothers went to in Orlando. I didn't play high school baseball. I played one year of high school football. Did uh, PA for the football team, and I did – wrote for the school newspaper. I was a sports editor, those kinds of things. And Tony was uh, an all-state catcher. He was a junior Olympian, and he went to a small school locally. went to Rollins College, a liberal arts college.
0: Yeah, I know Rollins. It's down in Orlando.
1: Yeah, exactly. And here's a guy that I thought was the greatest player that I'd ever seen. And he's going to a small school. He plays four years of college baseball and he excels at Rollins because UCF and Rollins were rivals back then when UCF, Central Florida, where I went to school for, for college uh, when we were still a very small school and he didn't even get drafted. And I'm going, here's a guy that spent his whole early life you know, trying to become a You know, a professional athlete, and he couldn't even get there. So, I I knew pretty early that that was not going to be the case. And when, you know, when I was 14, we we went back to New York for a a funeral for one of my grandparents. And at the time, we're in my in my uh, aunt uncle's uh, apartment in Brooklyn. And in fact, my cousin Vito still lives in that same apartment. And turn on the TV. The Knicks are on television. This is in April of. 74 turn on the next on tv and they turn on the radio with marv albert doing the game on the radio and i was like this is really really cool and again i was a baseball guy i mean even though it was marv and, and what he meant to my my family my extended family how they their favorite team and they wanted to hear a certain voice you know calling the game really resonated with me i my first major league game was at shea stadium with the yankees when, when Yankee Stadium was being renovated in 74 and 75, I remember Roy White, I think, went four for four or something against the, the Royals had a home run. Uh, and th- th- that was my early memories of, of setting the foundation of, of wanting to be a broadcaster, you know, went to college for it. I was lucky that uh, UCF at the time was a really small school, you know, relatively speaking to today. They've got about 65,000 students now. It was about 12 when I was there. You could go to the college radio station and go right on the air. And you couldn't hear the radio station from here to the other side of this room that I'm sitting in. But we we had this camaraderie of people, you know, I was part of a group of sports nuts. There were people that were really into the music, people that really were into the engineering and want to make sure that it sounded good, and people that were into the news. And we all treated it, you know, like it was a big deal. And it just gave me a chance to cut my teeth and do football, basketball, baseball, some soccer, and just, you know, have some fun with it. They're, I still have dear friends from those days, uh, even to this day. And it was it was a great way to kind of get it all started.
0: So after UCF and then going to Iowa, what was your broadcast experience in between that? Uh, take us through that. And then do you remember the job interview process with Iowa, who you talked to, how you talked to them? Was it a fax? Was it a phone? Uh, do, do you remember that process at all?
1: Yeah. It was, it, it, what, what's interesting, so – after, after UCF, uh, I, was in, I got an internship at NBC in New York. I was supposed to work with Marv Albert, who was my idol. And I get there in the summer of 1981, and I don't get a chance to work with him. Uh, end up on the radio side, work with Mark Mason, who later was one of the uh, founders of WFAN in New York. So I come back to Florida. Uh, I go to work for the university in the sports information department. And it just wasn't going well. I, I, had, I clashed with the basketball coach. Lou Sabin was our football coach, you know, from the O.J. Simpson Buffalo Bill days. And that was a great ride. Jay Bergman was the baseball coach who is, to this day, a dear friend of mine. And he took my resume to the winter meetings in Nashville in December of 1983, I, unbeknownst to me. And I get a phone call out of the blue from Frank Capiello, who was the GM of the Lynchburg Mets. Or I don't know where the Lynchburg Mets were. You know, It was Carolina <laughs> League. It was the Mets' high affiliate. And that's where it started. And, and out of that back then uh, El Paso uh, which was owned by Jim Paul and the Paul family they would host their version of the winter meetings uh, their own three-day marketing seminar where teams you know I'm talking 70 80 teams would come to town for three days what cups do you buy you know what how do you sell your advertising how do you sell your radio you know how do you do your your signage all the things that are you know, the, the great allure of, of minor league baseball. And through there is where I first met Sam, Sam Burnaby, you know, because he would come down from the Iowa Cubs uh, and they would make a presentation about something. So it, it just kind of, uh, the foundation was laid there where they, we met each other. We, you know, we spent some time together. I spent three years in El Paso, 85, 86, and 87. And, and at that time I had met Sam and, Next thing I know, he picks up the phone and he says, we've got an opening. We'd like you to, to come to, to Iowa. So he hires me in December of 1987. And I'm sitting uh, uh, I'm sitting at home during the holidays in Orlando with my parents. And I'm going, he must be calling me from home, right? Because it's like 12 degrees outside and nobody's working, right? And I, I had zero experience with with winter, you know, growing up south of Mason-Dixon line. And so he hires me and goes, we want you to, we want you to come to town, uh, in January of 1988.
0: So balmy time of year here.
1: Just, yes, very nice. So (laughs) I, 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 uh, I drive up there the first day, the windshield was like 30 below. I'm not kidding. And I have my little Toyota, you know, my, my Southern raised car. And shockingly, it wouldn't start, you know, I didn't have a block heater and that kind of stuff that that's, you know, back then was you know, like part of survival. So I couldn't even get to work the first day. It took me a while. So we had to jump my car. And, and as basically, as you, as you know, Alex, you, you throw on another layer. And if you have to, you walk the skywalk downtown and you talk to the clients and you go to work. And that was, it was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I, Sam is still a friend of mine, uh, Todd Gusky, who was one of the assistants there. We are, our families are very close. Uh, I have just a lot of fond memories of, of Iowa, a lot of fond memories of the team. Uh, you know, going downtown to Johnny's and having a couple of beers with then minor league umpires that became longtime big league umpires. It was it was a great time.
0: So before we get into more of that time in Iowa, it's time for me to remind you guys to subscribe to Unwritten Rules, and Iowa Cubs podcast on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, as well as Amazon Music. For more information on future guests for the Iowa Cubs podcast, make sure you visit us on iowacubs.com. Vince Catronio, currently one of the radio voices for the Oakland Athletics, formerly the voice of the Iowa Cubs, joining us, so Vince... You talk about when you get to Iowa, it was a balmy negative 30. Your car doesn't start. But when you step into Sec Taylor Stadium for the first time, what's your initial impression?
1: That was a lot of fun. I mean, I, I, you know, I had not been at that level. Triple you know, A was, and still is, you know, it's a breath away from the big leagues. And if, if, if you're doing what, what we do for a living and you get that opportunity, you, you know, you're, it becomes even more real. El Paso was a wonderful time for me, you know, three great years in the Texas league. We were fortunate. We got to fly a lot of, you know, for our travel because we were so uh, remotely distanced from the rest of the league. So I, I got a little bit of that taste, but it still wasn't, it wasn't triple A. Pete McCannon was, was our manager. Uh, you know, Don Zimmer was in Chicago at the time, but Jim Wright was our pitching coach and I've I've seen Jim a couple times over the years. I still see Pete. You know, he's he's done some scouting over the years, and he shows up in a press box somewhere, and and it just brings a great smile to my face. Uh, Mark Grace was on the team. Yeah. Uh, Damon Berryhill was on the team. Doug DeCenzo uh, didn't have a whole lot of pitching on that club.
0: I think I saw that Bob Bob Tewksbury and Scott Sanderson were on the team at yeah, one point.
1: Yeah, that's right. Tewks was on the club. Uh, didn't talk to Sanderson a whole lot, but uh, had a nice relationship with Bob, which continues to this day. Uh, I remember, you know, of course, you know, the restaurant down the left field line where the clubhouses were back in the old days. And, uh, you know, Sam and Ken, uh, you know, were the owners and they would be in the ballpark and they'd be in the offices quite a bit. And, uh, it was just it was it was a lot of fun. I, the, my favorite part about uh, the players was, you know, Mark Grace was, you know, he was a prospect. He was supposed to be really good. And he was terrible. I mean, the first five weeks, he didn't do anything. You know, he was Not a lot of power and, you know, line drive guy and just wasn't really connecting. All of a sudden, Jim Fry, who's the GM you know, for the Cubs, rolls into town like in mid-May for a series, watching him and others. And all of a sudden, Gracie goes like nine for 14 in the series. (laughs) He takes him on the plane with him. We never saw him again. So, you know, you talk about in this game so often, timing means a lot. And for Gracie, it was perfect timing. And even when I, you know, I would see him over the years, and you know, he's done some stuff, you know, with the Diamondbacks, and I would see him when he was on their broadcast. We would still talk about some of those, some of those great times in Iowa.
0: You guys were seventy-eight and sixty-four that year. That's not, that's not bad. We were. Yeah, you were seventy-eight and sixty-four. I did my research. Are there any games or trips from that year that 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 you recall or remember? Any crowds here at SEC Taylor Stadium, or SEC Taylor Field? Uh, did you have July 4th here? Was there any game that kind of stuck stuck out to you?
1: Well, I don't specifically remember a, a, a game or, or a, like a magical moment at a contest, but I do remember about that year is that was the one year that they combined the AAA leagues. So back then, Iowa was in the American Association and they combined them with the International League. So the travel was just an absolute bear. And you're playing... <laughs> two game series in Syracuse and Rochester and you go down to Tidewater to play there. you go to Pawtucket and then you go back out to you know, play in Denver and play in Omaha, uh, play in Oklahoma city, you know, th- things of that nature that that was a, an experiment that, that didn't work. And you know, this Alice, cause you travel with the club triple a is a lot of early wake up calls and a lot of uh, you know connections and, you know, basically getting to the next city, landing, grabbing your gear and just going to work. And there were, there are a lot of moments like that. I I do remember Denver was still in the league back then in 1988. It was a big deal to do a game from mile high stadium. Even those 12 people in the stands, we didn't have July 4th there. There wasn't a big crowd. So, but you just felt like, man, I'm in the big leagues. I'm in this massive stadium uh, uh, to watch games. And those are the, the main memories about parts of the season in terms of how it went. Travel was something that was very challenging. I know, Sam could probably tell you stories about how to how they how to put those uh, travel uh, traveling situations sit together. together. Yeah. 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 No,
0: he, He's talked about it before and they um, they don't seem like an easy process. So re- revisionist history, I guess. But yeah. what do you remember about the town? I mean, I'm sure you can gather. Our listeners can gather. Des Moines has changed just a smidge since 1988. You said Johnny's was your local establishment, which I, you know, they have Johnny's here. I go there too. I enjoy the same type of beverages that you do there. It's fun. Where did you live? And do you remember any restaurants? You're an Italian guy. Is there an Italian spot here that you remember?
1: I don't, I don't remember any of the restaurants. I lived in West Des Moines. I lived with uh, a gal. uh, Her name is Kathy Metcalf. Uh, she lives. She's back in Iowa, actually. Uh, she's an she's an astrologer, and she's just one of the neatest people on the planet. We're we're still close. Uh, you no, know, she's met my wife Veronica. She knows my kids, and things of that nature. Uh, and I, you know, I began to you know strike up my relationship, you know, with Todd and you know his wife Sherry, which continues to this day. Uh, I remember the summer was, you know, once once I got through, you know, the wind of the winter because that particular winter. If there wasn't a lot of snow, but man, it was bitter cold with the wind. And I remember, you know, hanging out with Sam and, and watching Iowa basketball games, you know, you know, getting my, my indoctrination into big 10 basketball. I wasn't, yeah. you know, I was a and growing up in, in the South. I watched a lot of SEC basketball and my older brothers went to Florida State, So I was accustomed to that style of football and those college football games that I would go to with my brothers upon occasion. But I do remember Watching the you know Iowa basketball games, what a big deal it was before the season started, and then I I, I enjoyed the community. There was there was nothing uh, that I didn't enjoy about Iowa. The, the thing was at that time, and because it still continues to this day, is that you know minor league baseball requires uh, versatility when you work for the staff. And I was like you do now. I mean, I was involved in sales meetings and, and bringing clients in, and, and that continued. And at that point, I, I didn't really want to do that anymore. I did. I didn't want to sell. I wanted just to be an announcer. And I wanted. I didn't want to spend the winter in Iowa again. But I wanted. Certainly wanted to come back. Yeah. And Sam was, you know, very helpful in that regard. He, he you know, he allowed me to to uh, to go back to Orlando. But you know, that year was the year I won this minor league announcer of the year award. And I got to go to the Olympics and sold Korea for NBC and then went home and then things, you know, changed after that. But, but the things that happened in Iowa during the season, the relationships that I still have to this day and the way that season ended and how Iowa is still so near and dear to me, especially the success of my career uh, are things that, that bring a smile to my face.
0: You talk about your relationship with Sam. Sam's still here. He's our team president. Can you give us a little flashback of what Sam was like and what he would affectionately call his heyday? Yeah, give us a little paint the picture of what Sam Burnaby was like back in 1988.
1: You walk in on a Saturday morning during the off season and as you walk into the office back then, I remember he walked it was like a little reception area and he'd have his little band box and he'd put on Bruce Hornsby in the Range that was like the way we kicked off the day. That was the day Bruce Hornsby was so popular back then. And, you know, he was, he was a golfer, still was a golfer. And, you, know, I, I, you know, I knew Mary and I wasn't around when, when, they started the family a whole lot, but, you know, you know, I knew Mary, she would come to, t- to the office occasionally. And and she was, um, you know, Sam back then was, he was kind of low key. Didn't, you know, he, he was, you know, dealing with, you know, things above him with ownership and trying to keep them happy and, and trying to do the job and then trying to manage, you know, a bunch of misfits like us in the office and, and make sure that they were, you know, doing things the right way. I mean, the Iowa Cubs were it. I mean, they were the it was a big deal. That was that was the year that, you know, Wrigley got lights. And I remember in the, actually, we had a home game that day, the night that it was rained out, you know, they're supposed to play the game and it didn't play, then they played the next day with the lights on. But I remember being, at the stadium at sec Taylor and all that happened and what a big deal that was. So, uh, yeah, I mean, Sam, uh, Sam, did he, you know, that low key kind of look at you a certain way, kind of tilt his head a bit, and <laughs> so you know, good, but it's still, you know, it was still, you know, it was still bottom line, man. Let's, we gotta get, we gotta get our sales up. We gotta, we gotta do this. We gotta do that. We gotta keep it going. And that's just, that was just the nature of the beast and, that's part of why it's part of why they were able to get a new stadium and part of why they're still a you know a very successful franchise.
0: Matter of fact is how I would put it. Very very matter of fact. Vince Catronio, former voice of the Iowa Cubs, joining us on Unwritten Rules and Iowa Cubs podcast. If you haven't subscribed yet, you should follow us along, Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. If you just like listening on your internet browser, I guess that's fine too. All new episodes will be posted weekly on IowaCubs.com. You talked about your year 1988 with the Iowa Cubs. 1989, 1990, you're with another team. It's what, the Tucson Toros? Is that correct? 1991, which, doing simple math, that is 30 years ago. You get your big league break with the Houston Astros. You've been in the big leagues ever since. Do you remember where you were when you found out that you got your first big league job offer?
1: Wow, that's a great question. If you don't mind, I want to take one step back about the Iowa season of 1988. Because back... Back then, the major league team still came to town to play the exhibition game okay. against the AAA team. And they came, I think, in May of that year. And Zim was the manager. And there was some significant controversy that year because in the clubhouse, somebody had put a picture up of Zim and they made it like a dartboard. And I want to say it was Les Lancaster, who was the right-hand reliever, that might have been the culprit with that. Well, Zim saw that and he went ballistic that day. <laughs> and it, it was, it was, you know, that's supposed to you know it's, you know, when when you're a minor league operator, you know, you have the chicken and you have the fireworks. And back yeah. then, if you had the major league team, it's like, man, all hands on deck, and it's going to be an overflow crowd. We're going to rope off the outfield. We're not going to stop selling tickets, and we want to. You're serving prime rib for the media spread. You got everything. And, and you know the the players will play one inning and they disappear, but that was okay. Uh, but that was that night did not end as, as smoothly as, as I think they, they wanted to end. It was, it was an, an interesting time, an, an interesting night uh, in Des Moines, but going, going to, uh, to Houston, it's when I, when I talk to people, Alex, about, you know, how I got here and how do you get jobs and, you know, people are, you know, wanting to send you their work and I'm always happy to listen to it and, you know, just give one person's critique every. I got to find some wood to knock on every job I've I've gotten from a ball to the big leagues was because I knew somebody. It wasn't a straight application, which I did. You know, I applied to the Mets after the 88 year. I was a finalist for Mets radio going into 89. Gary Cohen got the job. Gary was already doing games for them. Yeah. Uh, you know, part time. And I told Gary, I said, unless you're going to axe murder somebody between now and opening day, it's the job is yours. But that was just a you know, great experience. Talked to the Pirates and you know, talked to other clubs along the way. But w- with Houston, my eventual boss called me and said, could you send us some stuff? We're interested in hiring you. Uh, we have an opening. It's not play-by-play. You would host uh, the call-in show, which I called the Drunk Patrol eventually, uh, after home games. And I would do nine innings of color on the road on the radio with Milo Hamilton and Bill Brown. And that was that was the opportunity, and um, that's how that started. So I sent them some work, and then they flew me to town, interviewed me, and they hired me. So it wasn't like where you're you're searching and you're grinding, trying to find some some nugget if, if there if there's a, a team that has an opening, and you and you send your stuff, and you keep your fingers crossed. They called me. Is how that that started in Houston.
0: Yeah, there's there's no uh, online demos back in 1991.
1: I didn't have a website back in 19.
0: No, yeah, I, I I didn't think so. But you obviously had a phone because they telephoned you and said, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna fly you down." So y- you spend a handful of years in Houston. You you talk about working with Milo Hamilton, four frick award winning broadcaster. Then you spend six more years with the Texas Rangers, working with four frick award winning broadcaster Eric Nadel. He was named after that Milo during stint. Early on in your broadcasting career, you're working with Hall of Famers named, you're named right off the bat. Was that nerve-wracking in, in, in any moment? I mean, to me, that's like an NFL wide receiver getting drafted by the Colts, playing with Peyton Manning, then three years later, getting traded to the Patriots, and playing with Tom Brady. So that, that that's a little scary to me. What was that like for you?
1: Well, you know, with Milo, like I mentioned earlier, Milo was somebody that I watched as a kid. You know, I watched him do the Braves telecasts, you know, back in the 70s, uh, before i you know, started doing this. And I mentioned that to him and that I was trying to ingratiate myself to him as best I could. Uh, Milo at times was challenging, but the thing that I always admired about Milo was his unwielding enthusiasm for the game. He, he just, it really kind of, it, it got him going. I mean, it, it made his day to be behind that microphone and call that game and he prepared You know, as hard as anybody that I saw. He he had book work that he that was legendary, the stuff that he kept track of. And we all have ways that that's our linus blanket that we keep track of things that that keeps us secure in what we do. And I just I watched that and I and I paid attention and I learned and, and I tried to explain that to him, that you know it was important for me to to learn that from him and at times it was a good relationship, and at times it, it was it, it wasn't as smooth as I had wanted. But Bill Brown, who's still a dear friend of mine, he was you know just wonderful and very professional. And Larry Durker was doing games before he uh, before he became the manager of the That's team great. in my last year in 1997, uh, and he was great. I just I I just try to learn. I, I made sure I went into spring training '91 as prepared as I could be for what I was what I was about to do. And, uh, opening day, 1991 is, is one of the greatest memories I've ever had. Not, not just because it's your first game and it's always, it's, you know, it's always something you remember, but going back, I did two games for the Astros in 89. I flew to Houston after the first season of Tucson, which was an Astros affiliate farm director said, we want to fly to, to, to Houston. This isn't thank you. You're not going on the air. Just want you to, see the surroundings and you know watch a couple of games and then who eventually became my boss jamie hildreth taps me on the shoulder an hour literally an hour before the game sitting in the press room saying oh. uh bill brown is sick i need you to do the middle three innings on radio <laughs> wait what that's how that happened in 1989
0: that's how you make your big league debut when you're going as like a oh i'm gonna check out the big league ballpark big league press box And then an hour later, you're on the call for your first Mark
1: Portugal's pitch of the game against Cincinnati or somebody. And I'm going, you know, okay. You know, it's almost like you don't tell the quarterback he's going to start before the game. Did you even have a book on you? Did you even have like your, like, I don't remember what I brought. I mean, I I think I, I had enough stuff with me that, that it wasn't uh, just a, a total panic scenario, but it, it definitely, it definitely was different. And it was, it was just, you know, an interesting couple of days to do those games. But then so 1991, the Astros open up in Cincinnati against the Reds, who had just swept the A's in the World Series the previous year. So opening day still then was the parade downtown Cincinnati. They're the, the official first game of Major League Baseball. And they're giving out the World Series rings. And so Marge Shots, the ownership, doesn't know anybody's name. And here's my boy. And it's Chris Sabo. Here's another one of my boys. And it's Barry Larkin. And they, they hand him the ring and whatnot. But before that, it's opening day on the field. And you've experienced it. The opening day, every media person is there. Yeah. And my job was to do a pregame radio show and uh, do an interview with somebody. And I wanted Lou Piniella. Had not met Lou. Didn't know anything about Lou. And so all the TV cameras and everybody's around batting cage and whatnot. And I go up to Marty Brenneman, who was the longtime voice of the Reds. who was who became a Ford for Brick Award winner as well? I said, "Hey, Marty, uh, what do you think? I'd, I'd like to do Lou for a pregame show." And he goes, "Hey, kid, you just walk over with me. You follow me over to sit down with Lou. After Lou's done with me, you're next. The heck with the rest of these guys." And that's what happened. You know, he he, he, awesome. he took me under his wing and he just walked me over there. Literally, like you're under his shoulder. Almost, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, it's funny. I'm sitting in Arizona where you know we played the Reds in spring training for again game that we broadcast, uh, yesterday and Marty, Marty wasn't at the game, but Marty's in town this week, just on vacation. Now that he's retired, you know, over on the other side of, of the Valley with the, with the red. So it just, it was a, it was just a, an unbelievable moment. And those years in Houston were, were a great learning process and Eric, you know, same thing, uh, Rangers had an opening. Brad Sham was his partner. Now Brad is the voice of was, the, the Cowboys. Was that? Is still well, now the longtime voice of the Cowboys. He had a falling out with Jerry Jones back then, and he did three years of baseball. And all of a sudden, he got a chance to get back into football. And you no, know, Brad's a football guy. He's no. He, I mean, he knew the he knew baseball, but didn't really know baseball. And I had met you know, Eric because we would play exhibitions at the end of the year and the spring training, Astros and Rangers, Nolan Ryan would pitch and get a big crowd, that kind of thing. And I did a banquet you know, in Texas, you know, one of the minor league teams. So I, I developed a relationship with Eric, and he called, he called me and said, hey, you know, we'd like to talk to you. And so his boss contacted me, and I got that job in 98. And I called my dad, who was still alive at the time, sitting in then governor george bush's office because he was one he was the managing partner of the team yeah and eric to this day still has a very close relationship with uh george w bush and so he comes on the air on opening day with us in 1998 and we're doing the game and here comes you know uh george w and he and he sits between us and and so Eric's talking to him. We're talking about stuff and whatnot. not? Then it just kind of matter-of-factly turns to George and he goes, "So, uh, anything you want to in, you want to announce today that you're going to be doing in the next couple of years? Because you know all this conversation about running for president." And you know it was, it was just a kind of a fun moment. And Eric, you know, Milo was different. Milo was so different than Eric because Milo was you know he had a very Big ego, and he earned it with all that he had done. And certainly, winning the award proved that you know he was worthy. Eric, to this day, has zero ego. And we, you know, we struck up a great relationship. I, had, we, had, I had since got married, uh, started a family. Uh, so my two older kids, Dominic, who you know, who's twenty six, and Olivia, who's twenty five, still call Eric. Uncle Eric to this day that's how close he is. He didn't really know Sophia early. I mean, Sophia my youngest has since you know certainly seen Eric but not not the same kind of closeness and th- those were those were six great years. The first uh, two years went to the postseason against the Yankees scored one run in each series against the Yankees. It's tough. But uh, you know you know Pudge and Juan and you know Raffy and then Alex Rodriguez shows up and it's just those were, those were some wild times.
0: So you go back from that, and now you're on what, year 16, 15 with the Athletics? I think it's 15th year with the A's. Yep. 15 years working with Ken Korak as, you know, after Bill King passed away, Ken moves over to that that slot. You join Ken. How enjoyable has it been for you to be able to put down those roots for 15 years in the Bay Area?
1: Yeah, I, I, I swore that I would never work for a California team because – I knew I couldn't afford to live out there with a, with a young family. And now what I work you for swear California. On? Yeah. <laughs> that, that swear didn't work. Yeah. Dude, be careful what you wish for. So right? I, I worked there longer than the other two teams that I worked for combined. But it was challenging at first because you mentioned Bill King. Bill, you know, beloved figure in the Bay Area because of not just the A's, but he, he did the Warriors when they won the, the NBA championship with Nate Thurman in the 70s. He did the Raiders during the Madden years, actually went down to LA, did some of the games that they moved to LA, you know, his relationship with John Madden was very close. And then all the success he had with the, uh, with the athletics. And he passed away unexpectedly. You know, he, after, I was out of baseball for two years, you know, I, I was not renewed by the Rangers I had a new team president after 03. And he said, I just want to, I'm making a change, which is, you know, his right to do. They hired Victor Rojas to do the games. And I was, At home, selling insurance in Dallas, Texas, and maybe, you know, a couple of days away from not ever doing games again. And Bill passed away. And I knew Bill, you know, from my days with the Rangers, you know, we would have conversations both on the field and, you know, on the other side of the glass kind of thing. And he passed away unexpectedly in October of 05. And I got hired. And the fans... Never got a chance to say goodbye to Bill, you know, not that Bill, not that Bill was retiring, but he, he left and he didn't get a chance to, to feel how beloved he still is in that community. So my first game in spring training of 2006 out here in Phoenix, I opened the broadcast and I wrote this speech. I just basically said, I'm sorry that, that you've lost Bill. Uh, I knew Bill. He was a friend. He was somebody I admired as well. And I can't be Bill. You know I'm not Bill. I'm not going to pretend to be Bill. This is a tough time for you as a fan because you never got a chance to grieve or to mourn. And now it's tougher because games are, are starting and he's not here. I just ask your patience. You know, when you're listening to the game, hopefully you're getting a gallon of milk and I can give you the score. And then maybe you hear a story that you like, and it starts to, you get a, you know, a little bit of a, of a sense of comfort with me and familiarity with me. And that, that took a while that, that took, you know, over a year for that to happen, even maybe a bit longer. Well, I was lucky in that 06, we went to the postseason, uh, swept the twins in the first series, uh, and then lost to the Tigers in the second series. So the team was a winning team again, and that, that helped kind of eased me in because you're certainly focused on what's happening on the field and, and rooting for them. And as long as I gave them the score, it was going to work out. But th- that was, that was challenging. And I am, I'm very lucky to be there. Ken and I were friends back in the minor leagues. He was in Vegas when I was in Tucson. I, you know, I, I met his daughter, Emily, when she was like three years old, when I was in the big leagues in, uh, in Houston. And now she's like my, my kid. she's in her late twenties. Uh, you know, I've known Denise, his wife, you know, that whole time. And I called him, I said, uh, I know this is a tough time for you. You, you know, you grew up a Bill fan, you listened to Bill, and then you became partners for 10 years. Uh, I just let you know, I'm, I'm applying for the job. I'm not asking for you to, to, to put yourself out there on my behalf. I'm just letting you know, and we'll see how it plays out. And I, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to get the job. And, you know, we've, we've had some fun together. We've, we've had some, a lot of playoff teams. And uh, even as the number two guy, I've had some interesting moments with Katsay's inside the park home run or Hamilton drops the ball or walk off capital of baseball. These moments that just, I was fortunate to kind of fell in my lap last year. Joe uh, Mark Hanna makes a great catch in the playoffs against the white Sox, And it was reminiscent of Joe Rudy's catch in the world series of 72. And that immediately popped in my head. And I said that in the call, and as you know, Alex, when you're doing a game and something like that registers, you're on a high that you know that that yeah. is second to none. And so there, there have been a lot of a lot of great moments there, and uh, fortunate that is still continuing.
0: Finishing up our episode with Oakland Athletics radio voice and former Iowa Cubs radio voice Vince Catronio here on Unwritten Rules and Iowa Cubs podcast. One last time, you haven't heard me the three previous times. If you haven't subscribed yet. Make sure you follow us along, Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. If you like listening to us on just your internet browser, you're not into the apps, that's fine, too. All the new episodes will be posted weekly on iowacubs.com. Last segment here on the podcast, Vince, the hard questions, the fun stuff. Don't I I get to tell any Alex Cohen stories? I mean... Wait till I make it to the big leagues. <laughs> Three decades in the big leagues for you. 40 plus years of professional broadcasting. You've seen some stuff. So I want to know this. You've talked about some of the guests who you, you've talked to on air, your broadcast partners. Who is your favorite baseball related guest you've had either on a pregame interview or on air with you?
1: It's not even close. It's Tony Gwynn. Tony Gwynn was pregame show emeritus and everybody else was playing for second second place. Tony you know, when he was playing for the Padres, he would be sitting on the bench an hour before batting practice. And he was just, like sitting there, like he, he was like waiting for somebody to go up and just start talking or, or more importantly, in my case, start listening to his him talking. And he had a really high voice and just a lot of you know joy in that voice that he had. And he was I mean, he was wonderful in terms of of all the players that and I've had a lot of great ones to, to, to be around and talk to. But Tony was at the top of the list.
0: You spoke briefly about your first game in 1991, March shot against the Reds. That game sticks out. Aside from that, what's been your favorite game for you to call that you can recall?
1: Uh, it, it would have to be uh, game 162 of the 2012 season with the A's. Uh, Bob Melvin was in his first full season as the manager of the club. He took over in midway in 2011 for Bob Guerin and before the season started, the A's had signed uh, this Cuban import name, Juana Cespedes, kind of a big deal that Billy Bean was able to, to, to make that happen. And a lot of people thought the A's were going to be okay. And suddenly the A's are playing, and they're playing you know, competitive baseball, but they're still you know, down like seven games with 12 to play. Yeah. And, and then just that final homestand, uh, first to get into the postseason, which they did winning on a Sunday. Uh, I I don't know if it was against, I think it was against Seattle. And then that was when the season ended on a Wednesday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So the A's are in the playoffs. They know that as a wild card, well, they're still trying to win the American league West, which at that point they had spent zero days in first place that entire year. And the last day comes up and the A's are playing and they fall behind early. And then Cespedes is up in the fourth inning and a a very meaningless lazy fly ball on a bright blue day goes out to center field and Josh Hamilton drops the ball and it's my call and I'm "Ah," you know it was just a (laughs) it was a great moment you know Hamilton drops the ball the A's come back and rally and they win the game and they win the West uh you know they didn't they didn't advance out of the out of the playoffs that first round but winning that game was probably a just the most electric game that I've been a part of.
0: That sounds like a pretty fun game. Your favorite road city to visit slash, and I'll call this will be a two-part question, your favorite stadium to call a game in other than the Odako Coliseum.
1: Well, the, it has to bounce around. The favorite city is Chicago. Uh, it's where I had my honeymoon. I got, you know, I got married on a Tuesday night with my wife and our honeymoon was at Wrigley Field. So, uh, 1991. So that's, that has to be number one to, uh, you know, Rosebud's downtown in Chicago was uh, one of our favorite restaurants. My kids' favorite restaurants as well. When Seattle is sunny, it is a tough place to beat. It's a great walking around town. I love Safeco Field. That's really high on the list. And then uh, just the history of just being at Fenway and old Yankee Stadium was was special. You know, with still family in New York, got a chance to, to catch up with them and. My wife would see my side of the family as well. So I would say Wrigley Field, number one, Seattle, number two, then go with you know Fenway and Old Yankee.
0: I like asking this question, and I, you kind of brought it up when you did your first three innings of play-by-play when you were topped on the shoulder in the media room, saying, hey, you're going in. There you go, kid. But did you ever have just like a pinch-me moment that says, like, man, like I'm there. Like I remember when I worked with you guys in 2014, um, and I was a you know, broadcast assistant. I fed you guys stats and and really learned a lot from which you did
1: a great job by the way
0: thank you you, i appreciate that i glowing recommendation
1: you you uh you know for for what we did and 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 what you wanted to do uh meant a lot because you used that opportunity to to pay attention and also to 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 find your way and, and by doing that you did an incredible job of making us sound like we knew what we were talking about.
0: I, I needed it more than you did. So I, I appreciate that. But I remember sitting in the booth and Joe Tory walked in and he was working with major league baseball at that time. And that was the only time I'm just like, holy crap, that's Joe Tory. So that was my real pinch me moment at that point. Have you, did you ever have a, a pinch me moment? Um,
1: I, I'd probably have to sit there and, and, and think about it just that opening day in Cincinnati jumps out, but just in terms of like a day-to-day thing and you, and you turn around and you see somebody probably, probably not. I, you know, when Eric went into the hall of fame, Eric Nadel, uh, I, I flew to Cooperstown, uh, Scott Fransky, who does the Phillies. He was, a, he was like my backup. So he went to Cooperstown. John Miller was Eric's first partner. He went to Cooperstown. We actually rode together from the airport to Cooperstown. That's awesome. And, and you know, I'd been to Cooperstown a few times, you know, but not not at this time, not around a Hall of Fame weekend. And my wife was already there. She got there the night before. And I, I walk up to the Otisago Hotel to, 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 to see my wife and she <laughs> she's having a conversation with Tom Brokaw about a weather app on her phone and then she starts talking to joe Torrey who's standing next to sandy koufax it's like what okay (laughs) i get it i mean so you talk like like walking yeah getting a chance to kind of walk through history a little bit just and it was great because it was a moment that i could step back and enjoy from my perspective and see uh the enjoyment that my wife was having in in that moment that was that was really cool Doing the Astro game, doing the games for the A's against the Astros. I remember one time a couple of years ago, we we're playing. And Craig Biggio is one of the, you know, he's one of their special assistants now. And I've known Craig since '91. And our, you know, our domics played wiffle ball with Cabin. and you know, they he saw him in the Cape and all that kind of stuff. But all of a sudden, Biggio walks into the booth. And when you're when you're broadcasting on the road, in most cases, and we're like that. Uh, you use a, a local engineer. So we had a, a, a local young guy that was our engineer. And Craig walks in and he just comes up and like, pats me on the back and we shakes my hand. We start having a conversation and, and he leaves. And the engineer looks at me like, that was Craig Viggio. <laughs> I, I go, yeah, it was. I mean, I could, you know, he's, he's Craig. Yeah. He's, he, he puts his pants on one leg at a time. He has more change in his pocket. That's the only difference. He's going to have your wallet. Yeah, but he's but that was a, that was a fun moment to because it just it gave me an appreciation and, and a thankfulness of of having those kind of relationships that continue to this day. Dan Plezac, who works for MLB Network, was with me in El Paso in 1985, and the, they were about ready to get eliminated by the Mets team in the Texas League Championship Series. And I needed Terry Bevington, our manager, to do the pregame show. We wouldn't do it. He was like he was a chicken. And please, Zach walks up to me and goes, I'll do it. And, you know, we had a relationship that whole year. And to this day, we still, we still talk. I see him, you know, when he comes to town for spring training. And, you know, he's just, he shows up one day in Philadelphia in the booth and gives you a big hug. Those are the kind of things that we're so fortunate to have in our lives and get a chance to experience. And I'm, I'm thankful every day that I get to do what I do.
0: All right, one final question before we let you duck out of here. And it's an important one, and it's somewhat long-winded, so bear with me. You brought it up. You have a lovely family. You have a wife, three beautiful, well-adjusted kids, a son-in-law, your firstborn, son Dominic. You brought him up, up-and-coming broadcaster in the industry, you know, calling games of minor league baseball. He's done some stuff for the Pac-12 network. As a father, I'm sure you told your kids that you could do anything that you want to do, be anything that you want to be when you grow up. Well, Dom chose your career path. What's that been like for you?
1: It, it really has been something. I mean, this is a kid that wanted to be a garbage man when he was three. He wanted to be an astronaut when he was – probably still wants to be an astronaut, but he, he did when he was a young kid. And then when I was at the Rangers, he got a chance to be on the field and take – But you know, they would hit ground balls to Jerry Naren and Bucky Dent and Steve Smith would hit ground balls to him, to Patrick Mahomes who was there when his dad pitched one year and, you know, a bunch of the other guys, Palmero's kids and Pudge's kids and whatnot. And he was around it. And and then he went to Arizona state, you know, to, to work on the broadcast. And I try to tell him all the time because he, he experienced when I, when I was not renewed in, after the 2003 season, he was nine years old. You know, he was nine to 10. I got a chance to coach him in, in travel ball that those two years, which was very rewarding for me, absent of doing my job. And every time, you know, I would mention stuff to him about, Hey, so-and-so, did get his contract renewed or, you know, this is a tough business. He goes, yeah, I know. I get it. You know, this is still something I want to do. And he's, he's a talented kid. You know, he's, he's really sharp in, in the, the things that happen from a modern point of view with, you know, with uh, social media and also with, uh, you know, he's got cameras and he's got, you know, drones, drones he's, Yeah, he's got all this kind of stuff that he, that he does. And he, he, he loves baseball and he loves golf and he's, Trying to combine the two right now. Uh, we did our first game together in spring training like three or four years ago. That was it my was over-
0: next. Yeah, that was my next question. Doing a, a big league spring training game with your son. How enjoyable and how emotional was that?
1: It was. I mean, it was. It was very emotional. Um, it just. It just was different. And and the thing was, he was the lead. I mean, he got to be. You know, it was it was his game. I was just kind of helping out. But we were just talking about this a few days ago because he recalls. We're getting ready to do the game over in Peoria, either playing the Padres or the Mariners. And he looks to the next booth over and David Forrest and Billy Bean are sitting in the booth. So he's going, Oh my God, here I am. I'm going to make my major league debut. And the GM is going to hear every word I say, I better get it right. So uh, he's, he's been around it a lot. Uh, He's pretty mature kid. Uh, He likes what he's doing. And that was, that was special. We've done, we've done games together for, for three years now and uh, always look forward to to getting a chance to do that. And it, you know, that's just, you know, that's just a dad moment. It's not a baseball moment. It's not a broadcasting moment. It's just a dad moment.
0: Well, hopefully there's more games for the two of you calling side by side on the horizon, because obviously you've been in the big leagues for a long time. You're well-respected. I think you and Ken are the best radio booth in the business. I'm a little bit biased and Dom has a lot of talent and obviously has the pedigree for it. So hopefully you guys can do games in the future together as well.
1: Well, I appreciate that, Alex. Uh, it's uh, knock on wood. It's, it's been a, a roller coaster life and I'm thankful to be a part of it and uh, hope it still continues. And I wish you all the best as well. There's, there's, there's nothing like being in the game and there's nothing like broadcasting a game. And uh, the reminder that I, you know, said before, you, you're, you're knocking on the door and you're certainly talented enough to, to be here. You know, it's just, it's just one of those things. It's a very subjective business, unfortunately at times, but what Trust in your talent, trust in your ability, and you'll, you'll be doing the same thing that we're doing up here.
0: I, I appreciate it, Vince. Thank you for joining us. And go A's, unless they're playing the Cubs, of course. But uh, we really appreciate the time. And uh, Vince, best of luck this year.
1: Thanks, Alex. And thanks for allowing me to relive some great memories there in Des Moines.
0: It was a lot of fun. That was another episode of Unwritten Rules and Iowa Cubs podcast. For Vince Catroni, I'm Alex Cohen. We will see you all next week.